the passing of Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is well it's like the Chinese symbol for chaos right it can mean opportunity or it can mean danger and what it ends up meaning is really up to the people that are dealing with it and how they deal with it more so than anything else which is it? Is it an opportunity? Is it dangerous? It really depends on, for the most part, which side of this whole argument you're on, doesn't it? Should Trump be allowed to point or point a replacement? Should he not be allowed to point a replacement? There are arguments on both sides. I don't know really what's going to happen. What I do know is that Neither side has the best interests of the nation as a whole at heart. So what we're going to get is, well, <laughs> pretty big battle. There you have it. When you consider this, though, in the terms of ultimate goals, where are we going? Um, there's always a, a long-term element to this. New Yorker magazine the other day ran an article about four things that they believe need to happen and that if the Democrat Party takes the White House, if Biden wins, and if by some chance they take the Senate, thus giving them control over again all three, both of the branches, the executive and the legislative, then there are four things that they are going to do. Number one is they are going to eliminate the cloture rule entirely. Do away with that. Secondly, they're going to grant statehood to the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Thirdly, they are going to expand the lower courts. And finally, expand and thus pack the Supreme Court. These are the four things that the New Yorker believes that if the Democrats win... They can and will do. There are people on the conservative side of things who believe that it doesn't matter if they win or not, that these four things are going to happen anyway. And there's some pretty good historical evidence for the fact that Republicans will go along with it. Why do we say that? Well, we're going to look at these four things over the next couple of days. We'll look at today, we'll look at the cloture rule. Uh, then we'll look at the statehood issues, and then we'll look at the court enlargements. So at least my shows are planned for the week, right? That way <laughs> I don't have to think too much, I guess, while I'm doing Ben's remote schooling. Because this week we're doing science and ecology and ecosystems and ay, 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 star testing. So that'll be fun. I thought this week we would start with cloture and talk about a little bit about what cloture is and how we got there and why the why they have it it's a very interesting process it's a very interesting rule and it's it's one of those rules that has been around for more than a hundred years and because of that we don't really understand it we don't really we don't really even talk about it until it comes up in a situation such as the nuclear sorry nuclear option 
a few years ago when Harry Reid was trying to get justices confirmed on the D.C. Circuit and Republicans were filibustering it. And he got tired of that because, uh, as we talked about on the radio at the time, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals was overseeing all of the Obamacare cases. And so he needed that court to be full. And so he invoked the nuclear option, sorry, nuclear option for lower courts, seated those three justices, and then lost the Senate, which, of course, no one was expecting, least of all Harry Reid. When Trump came in a few years later, of course, then we have the Supreme Court thing, and Harry Reid had made it clear that the nuclear option did not apply to that, but the Republicans, tired now of Democrat filibustering, said, this is stupid, we're applying the nuclear option, nuclear option to the Supreme Court nominees and to cabinet positions, and we're confirming these people. Boom. There are many people, myself included, who have long thought that overdue anyway. The cloture rule is a complex, is a, is, it's not really all that complex, but it is riddled, if you might, uh, if I might borrow a phrase, it is riddled with the vestiges of slavery. It is a rule designed to do some things that probably needed to be done in a way that needed to be done, but it wasn't very effective at doing the things that needed to be done. Southern senators had a tendency to filibuster any civil rights acts, any civil rights law legislation. But that, that wasn't what caused the cloture rule. The cloture rule came about in 1917, March of 1917. Now, that's a little more than a little less than a month before Woodrow Wilson will stand in the, in the, in the chamber, the House chamber, before a joint session of Congress and ask for a declaration of war against Germany. We look at this today as a de facto done deal that the United States was united, eager, anxious, and willing to go to war to become the arsenal of democracy, to preserve liberty, and that everybody was on board. Nothing is further from the truth. I mean, it really isn't. There was a huge, let's just call it almost Vietnam-esque, anti-war movement in the 1916-1917 era in the United States. And there were prominent Republican leaders who were involved with this. Yes, many of the anti-war folks were socialists, communists, and the likes of that, but there were a lot of Republicans, particularly in Midwestern states with heavy German immigrant populations, who were not all that willing to rush to war. The Democrat Party, on the other hand, led by progressive Woodrow Wilson, had come to the conclusion really in 1915 and sort of ran in 1916 on, we'll stay out of the war, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and into 1917 with, we're going to, you know, we got to get into this war. The problem was the Senate filibuster. Wilson continued to do some things that were provocations, that were designed as irritants to Imperial Germany. Imperial Germany was practicing unrestricted submarine warfare, which of course 
annoyed us. And so our response to this, Wilson's response to this was, let's arm our merchant ships, put guns on our merchant ships. Now, what does that do, dude? They're submarines. Sure. But in World War I, submarines generally attacked on the surface. Generally. Not always, but generally. They preferred to use their guns, the, the, the gun mounted on the deck before, in front of the, the conning tower, to their torpedoes. Why? One, torpedoes were notoriously unreliable. And number two, um, they didn't have a lot of them. And so you didn't want to waste them unless you absolutely had to. You use the gun. We can carry lots of shells for this little 88 millimeter gun, this four inch gun, whatever. And against an unprotected, unarmed merchantman, it's highly effective. It would remain so well into the 1950s. The. Second World War U-boats, particularly in the early part of the war, did the same thing. So the idea here is you arm the merchant ships with guns and trained gun crews, and it evens the playing field a little bit, right? The problem is it's an act of war. The problem is it's a provocation. The problem is that it's basically saying we're sailing our ships into war zones because we're selling billions and I do mean billions in 1917 dollars of war supplies to Britain and France, and we want to protect our investment. So this would be seen as a provocation. This would be basically an act of war. And somewhere between four and six, it kind of depends on who you read, senators took when they when the Senate took up the bill to arm the merchant ships, they filibustered the bill. They just basically kept talking, and so as long as they keep talking, the bill can't be voted on. Well, this angered Woodrow Wilson immensely, who, for being you know a progressive icon and a progressive hero, was quite the warmonger when you get right down to it. He wanted to get into this war because he saw it as some sort of moralistic crusade. That said, these senators, led by... Roy LaFollette up in uh, Wisconsin, where the real Americans live, filibustered the bill and essentially killed it so that there would be no arming of American merchant ships. Well, the response to this was, we need a rule in the Senate, not a law, not a, not a national law that has to be signed by the president and passed by both, a Senate rule that establishes this thing called the cloture rule. And what this will do is it will essentially allow us to end filibusters. Now, we'll make it sound good. Two-thirds majority of the senators will, you know, it's present, can, can end the, the debate. Of course, neither party has a two-thirds majority, so this seems reasonable. I mean, if we get into a debate over something that's really stupid, both sides can get together and go, we're not doing this. And so on March 8th, 1917, the United States Senate passed the cloture bill. And this is fascinating to me because, again, um, you're dealing with uh, the world news of that day. The LA Times lists nine stories of importance, and the foremost, these are the most important stories of March 8th, 1917. Number one, Amazon's ordered to France. This turned into a historical rabbit hole that I went down. What that really means is. France and Britain, for the first time in history, sent women to the front lines of the war. And, of course, they were called the Amazons 
because they were warriors. United States, on March 8th, 1917, uh, also invaded Cuba. I don't know if you knew that or not. Don't know, uh, I haven't really gotten into why yet, but there was apparently another rebellion going on in Cuba, and so we decided we were going to end that, and we invaded Cuba. 400 guys, but, you know, it's an invasion. Number three was Mexico. What was happening in Mexico that day? Well, they, they found that the Germans were building a radio wireless station in Mexico to communicate with their U-boats and Navy. Of course, this was a problem. It isn't until you get to number four that cloture actually becomes an issue in, in the LA Times's view of things, which was very simply that the cloture bill passed, ships will be armed. And if you blow that up a little bit, you'll notice that at the top of it, it says progress. Cloture bill passes, ships will be armed, Wilson has his own way in the Senate, and will call an extra session. That's a headline that uh, kind of gets ahead, put the cart ahead of the horse a little bit, because it wasn't really clear that he was going to call an extra session. On the same day, his attorney general and his secretary of state both informed him in writing that he had the executive authority to go ahead on an executive order and arm the warships, regardless of what the Senate did anyway. So now it was a question of, well, will he just order and sign an executive order arming the ships, or will he call a session of the, you know, the Congress back into session and have them pass the bill saying, yes, you can arm the ships? And this was really... Uh, it was kind of up in the air. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to do because the president at the time was sick. He had a cold. And as so often happened in those days, and see, this is the thing we don't think about, when somebody that you work with closely, family, whatever, gets sick, a lot of people around him, the cabinet, left town because they didn't want to get sick. So they would leave town. So the cabinet was gone. Most of the cabinet was gone. The president was in bed sick. The Senate passed this cloture rule saying, okay, yeah, we can end the debate if we get enough votes. And they passed that bill by 73 to 3, meaning that of the 41 Republicans who were in the Senate that day, 41 minus 3, uh, 38 voted for. 40, 38 Republicans voted for the cloture rule in 1917 for the sole reason of being able to end the debate over whether or not the United States would arm its ships and essentially declare undeclared war on, on Imperial Germany. You see why this is so complex? They also, when they initially made the rule, made it very, they gave it that two-thirds threshold to end the debate. Remember, in those days, there were, few, there were two less states, so... There were, it was a little, two-thirds was a, was, a, was a big number, and it was hard to get that. As we would go later on through the 1950s and into the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement, we would see Southern senators filibustering, and they were never able to get the cloture rule to end that debate in those filibusters because they set the bar too high. In 1975, the... 75 or 73, I don't remember. Might have been 73. Uh, the 74 session. The Democrats gained enough uh, votes in the Senate to change the rule to lower it to the, what we're familiar with today, the 60. And then, of course, in the later, in the last probably 10 years now, 
We've seen twice the cloture rule be again modified, one for the lower court justices and number two for the Supreme Court justices and cabinet members. The cloture rule is by its own implementation a progressive tool to prevent the Senate from preventing a progressive president, Woodrow Wilson, from doing what he wanted to do, which was to go to war. Wilson was really pushing hard for the nation to go to war. And what made all of this moot was less than a month later, the United States declared war on Imperial Germany anyway. It's decided that, uh, well, this is the time. Maybe we'll get into some of that in the, in the future weeks because it's a fascinating story. That, that speech that he gave in early April is remarkable for its reactions, for its, for its content, and for ultimately what came of it. But what ended up happening is the United States went to war. The question then becomes, what happens to the cloture rule now? The New Yorker postulates that the cloture rule is going to be eliminated. It's going to be nuked. The many conservatives and conservative think tanks tend to agree that it needs to go away. This whole idea of cloture is its problematic in a lot of ways. It's unfair, for one thing. It does away with much of the purpose of the Senate, which is to reasonably debate things. And while there are some archaic rules with it, once you, know, you have 16 senators sponsor a cloture movement, you have motion, you have to have a full day, a Senate's work day between the cloture vote and the actual end of the debate. So it doesn't really, it's not like it's an instantaneous thing. Nothing moves quickly in the Senate, which is the way it's designed to work. But ultimately, it's Republicans that will have say in this, one way or the other, because unless the Senate decides to change its rules so that you know, we can just do this, but uh, Republicans are going to support this, and I, I, I have no doubt of that whatsoever. Because the cloture rule, number one, doesn't, it's not very effective. It, it rarely actually, I mean, it, we hear about it all the time, but what you don't realize is that most of the time it's on a procedural motion, not an actual bill. When actually invoked or tempted to be invoked on legislation, it's almost never successful. So it's not really useful for that anyway. Ultimately, it, can, it, it prevents people from doing populist things. In 1917, the nation wanted to go to war. They put cloture in so that they could definitely go to war, knowing full well that only three senators would ever vote against it. But a few years later, they tried to invoke it to end the debate over the Treaty of Versailles, and were not able to get to the 67. Because now, all of a sudden, there were a lot of other people that were like, no, we're not ending. We're not, we're not ending the debate over this treaty. Nope. They tried to end debates in the 1960s and 50s over civil rights issues. Couldn't do it. They'll want to get rid of this, and they will ultimately probably succeed, which is not necessarily a bad thing. The concern, however, will become, what will they use to actually do that? Will they sit down at the beginning of a session and go, hey, let's talk about cloture. Do we really need this? I mean, can we lower it to 55? Can we lower it to 53? Um, you know, is there a reasonable level where we could lower that? 
Or will they use some event to just, much as they used in 1917, an event to justify installing the cloture rule, they could use an event, a mass shooting. The Senate wants to take up gun control. And it's being filibustered and they can't get cloture. What if we do away with that cloture and on this and we just do away with the cloture rule so that we can pass gun control? It's a plausible theory. Um, what about the Green New Deal? What if the Senate and, and a presumed Biden presidency decides that the Green New Deal is the most important thing? It's, it's, it's a matter of national exigency. If we don't do this right now, it's the end of the world. What happens then when they say, okay, the Republicans won't give us our 60 votes to end cloture. Let's just end cloture. And it's an enormous enough issue, problem, emergency that we need this cloture rule done away with permanently so that we can move forward. Those are the kinds of things to consider in this ending of cloture. It also gives you pause to think about, well, the presidential vote is important, but... As someone once said, all elections have consequences. One of those consequences could be the elimination of the cloture rule, which probably needs to go anyway. But does it need to go because it's a nonsensical, useless, ineffective rule? Or will it be made to go for political expediency the same way that it was originally created in the first place? That's... No question.